in Kansas still. <laughs> I can tell by the echo of the old farmhouse room you're yes, in. Yes, I actually am in the old farmhouse room that was next to an old hotel that's been uh, torn down. It's an old house. I'm in Lester Raymer's house. And it's really exciting here in Lindsborg because Little Sweden USA is about to celebrate Hillingsfest, which is a Swedish um, parade and all the children are dressing up. Right. Oh. So I got some paleo news. Oh, paleo news, yes. Prehistoric yeah. stuff. Do you know, okay, do you know what a, a this is going to be, well, do you know what a water bear is? I do. Yeah, a water bear is, is a very uh, non-scientific name for a... Well, a little creature that lives in the ocean. They're microscopic, a, and it's one of those things that you're about to tell me, Dave. Yeah. You know more it's about a, this. It's a, yeah, it's a tardigrade. Tardigrade, that's it. But they don't just live in the ocean. They live everywhere. They live on a blade of grass. They live in your carpet. They live, uh, they're, like, they're worldwide. On body, maybe? Uh, I don't know if they live on your body. I think those are the uh, the lice that I keep seeing you scratching. <laughs> but um, in your beard, those things falling out oh, of your beard. You. No, a tardigrade is this little tiny thing. It, it, when you look at it, it looks really cute. But when you look at it under a, a microscope, it's very alien looking. Mind but blowing. It has, it has four legs and... Um, a strange flower-shaped mouth. Kind of reminds me of the creatures from Dune or something like that, you know? These things have been found to survive the vacuum of space. Right. They can survive being dried out and desiccated yeah. and then revive. They're, they're pretty much indestructible. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and? They just found one Yes. in amber. Everything is in amber now. It's incredible. They found uh, a tardigrade in 16 million year old amber. And guess where this amber is from? Um, it's always from the. Uh, <laughs> Mongolia. No. No. Morocco. Dominican Republic. I don't know why the amber comes from the there. DR. The DR. Wow. So it is the third fossil tardigrade from the Miocene. Uh, it's the oldest one. And that's pretty cool. So they've that, been rare uh, in the fossil record then. Now. Very rare. Well, they're so small. They're tiny. They're tiny. Like if you were to take, I saw a picture of a penny, an American U.S. penny, with a little tiny block of salt, right? You know how salt crystals are square? Yeah. And that was like sitting next to Lincoln's shoe on the little tiny Lincoln on the back of the penny inside the Lincoln Memorial. And below that little tiny square of salt was this tardigrade to show you how small they are you know actually while you were talking about that i'm just i just flashed on uh, going down memory lane here but i remember when my mom uh got me a microscope as a kid oh and i oh. started and i was just so fascinated by all the cool stuff and i would take salt and spiders oh right you know yeah. and just look at all the incredible things and actually i want to want another microscope in my life but yeah it's cool i bought one when my son was about eight and i still have it i pull it out all the time it's a stereoscopic and i've got you know slides and slide covers and everything to uh look at my pond scum which is pretty awesome <laughs> that's right hey speaking of uh pond scum, pond scum yes you're about <laughs> it to has diss nothing me again to do. aren't you no it had well yeah um come on it has nothing to do with pond scum, but our guest today is a book that you recommended I read, and just the title of it, I went, oh my God, I can't wait. And uh, that is... The Ends of the World. The Ends of right. the, the Multiple Ends of the World. It's so apocalyptic, but it's it's the massive extinction events that have already happened. Yeah, we have been through five mass extinctions, maybe a few more, but five just like things where the planet just 
kills everything, man. And it's yeah. I mean, we're talking life in the ocean, life on land. I mean, it's it's phenomenal the the amount of mass death and 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 the fact is that these species that died out didn't come back. A lot of them. Many meet their end, and that's it. You know, so um, that's it. Many groups so of life animals. Seems... Yeah. So life is cruel. Life. I mean, you read this book, it's like, whoa, we are lucky to be here. So now this is an interview where I was not there because the writer of this book, Peter Brennan, was driving through Lindsborg, Kansas. You snagged him as he went by the, the intersnake. It turns out he's actually moving back east from Boulder, Colorado. He literally had right. his belongings stuffed in the car, and he stopped here. I can't wait to listen to this because I wasn't there. <laughs> you weren't there, and actually, yeah. you don't allow alcohol on the set, but... Uh, no. When Peter and I were here, we we had a couple beers. You can maybe hear them All in the right, background. Well, hopefully that'll make the two boring old men colorful. It was a great interview. <laughs> it's so cool to be able to read a book, finish a book, call the author. And he's like, well, I could be there in two days. And boom, he was here. That's so cool. No. All right. Well, let's uh, start your tape recorder. And uh, remember those tape recorders? Yeah, the real, real. Yeah, let's start it up. And uh, here we go. All right. I'm sitting here in Lindsborg, Kansas, and I've just finished a really cool book, The Ends of the World by Peter Brannon. And uh, oh, so conveniently, Peter has driven through here. He's here, he's here tonight. Like, and this is, this is so cool, Peter, to like, finish a book, call the author, and he's here. Yeah, I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> no, I really, I really enjoyed your book. I took my time with it. And I have sticky notes all over the place and, you know, but uh, I was underlining like crazy as, as I read this thing. It's so well written. It's so compelling. But it's the story of the ends of the world, the five previous extinctions. And it also explores the idea of whether or not we're going through an extinction right now. But before we get into that, I just want to ask you, Peter, are you a paleo nerd? I am definitely a paleo nerd. You confess to it right now. I do, I confess. All right, how did it start? What, tell me. How did it start? Um, I think it was, oh. reading, it was reading books by Walter Alvarez, T-Rex and the Crater of Doom. Um, and Peter Ward wrote some books in the early 2000s about the Permian mass extinction. Um, and I'd always, as a kid, I was a huge dinosaur nerd and read Jurassic Park. Um, you read Jurassic Park? I read Jurassic Park. Before Hallsville. the movie came out. It was right when the movie came out. Right when the movie came out. So yeah, it was you, like 1993 or something. So you're an East Coast guy, but you're kind of Jurassic Park generation in a way. Yeah. I mean, 40s. No, that, that movie was a huge, huge deal to me. Well, so you're a writer. You're actually yeah. a professional writer. Yeah. And um, I'm a professional artist, and you've been managed to live off of words, and I live off of pictures, which is kind of cool. But um, how did you convert your... I mean, you still love dinosaurs, right? Oh yeah, I, I think I've uh, I've been a little brainwashed by some of the like Paleozoic invertebrate people that now I can <laughs> I can appreciate uh, a brachiopod just as much as a oh a T -Rex oh femur, oh so, you came yeah. around oh yeah for sure give well, me your yeah, backstory so I I kind of fell away from my obsession with paleontology as a kid for a while and then I was a science journalist working in New England writing a lot about the ocean when you write about the ocean you find out that a lot of kind of stuff's going wrong in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, overfishing, nutrient pollution, and future things like ocean acidification and climate change and all this kind of depressing stuff. But I, uh, so I was doing that and I had this fellowship at um, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution for science journalists. And it was only a week long, but um, 
I managed to find some researchers who are doing some really interesting stuff on the PETM, which is this thing 56 million years ago, the Paleocene, the Eocene Thermal Maximum. Thank you for defining that. What They're working on the PETM at the Woods Hole. Yeah, because the... So people study it by looking at fossils on land, but one of our best sort of most illuminating records of that event is from deep sea sediments and all around really? the world. Yeah. So you can see in the sediments that, sorry, uh, we're drinking beer here. It's yeah. just, a, it's, so it's a, on the record, but yeah. so you go to the bottom of the ocean to actually find out how warm the world was 55 million years ago. Well, what you see is this incredible sort of uh, stack of sediments that are mostly chalky because they're made out of plankton that calcify things that are called copolithophores. And they, uh, so you have this really chalky kind of sediment that goes and goes and goes. And then there's this really stark line in it where it just becomes clay for 250,000 years and then becomes chalky again. So, that, so something happened so there. So something happened there. Like just like when you see the sort of clay layer in Italy that the Alvarez has made famous with the dinosaur extinction. With this event, you also see this really dramatic uh, record in the in sort of life that was laid down at the bottom of the sea. And what happened was a lot of CO2 came out of the North Atlantic probably and made the planet about five to nine degrees warmer and the CO2 reacted with the seawater, which makes it more acidic. And that's why you have this sort of line in the, in the deep sea sediment. It changes from sort of chalky calcium carbonate to clays for, and it takes 200,000 years or so for the ocean chemistry to recover. So so you're a teenager, you're looking at this stuff. Well, you're this, was, working no, this on... was in my 20s when I was already a full-time journalist and sort of being introduced to this idea that the things that we're worried about in the future, like climate change and things, aren't just these theoretical things in computer models, but you can actually go to rocks and study really ancient events when the planet kind of ran the same experiment that we're running now. So I thought that was the just... The planet a, ran the same experiment that we're running now. Yeah, and I just thought that was such a cool way into the, the topic that I hadn't really seen that much written about, so I sort of just got obsessed after that. Well, all right, so you are a kid growing up in the Boston area. You yeah. go up, you quickly became a journalist. I mean, that's kind of... A, but you began, you're writing for pretty prestigious journals now, things like the Atlantic, the New York Times. Yeah, I started working How on... How is it... I mean, your wordsmith had just jumped into writing about... Uh, I'm getting into your backstory. Yeah, here. I mean, I always loved reading science nonfiction, so it was sort of in the back of my mind that that's something that I'd want to write. I started out writing for a small community newspaper and then sort of started pitching stories to bigger and bigger outlets and things sort of snowballed. So you wanted to make a living as a writer. Yeah, for sure. But you had this deep love of paleontology. Well, I love that I rediscovered um, probably 10 years ago or so. So, but you began to realize that there's something going on in the planet and you have become an expert in extinctions now. A uh, self-taught expert in extinctions? Yeah. I mean, I like to think that I'm, I am just uh, communicating the work of scientists rather than myself. Right. You're the messenger. Yeah, right. Some scientists are really good at science communication, but sometimes there's sort of a... Some are, I would say. Yeah. Some... Actually, that's my job too, is helping to <laughs> right. explain. Yeah, exactly. You know? Because they're not the best communicators, really. But I don't want to tar them all with that brush. But yeah, well, some, some of I think we can, maybe, a little <laughs> bit. I don't know. That's why there's jobs yeah, and right. what we do. Right, but, right. but you really have become like a messenger for um, a lot of the research that's going on and the relevance of paleontology. Yeah. Because I think we're all seeing that, aren't we? That 
Yeah. Paleontology was suddenly within the last, I mean, I'm almost 70 years old here, but the relevance of it is like the, what is the planet doing now? And wait, if we look to the past, we can see stuff. I want to go through each extinction with you. Okay, sure. But I realized that you worked early on the PETM, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, which is when the planet was as hot as it's ever been. Yeah. From what we know, right? It was really hot, yeah. Why isn't there an extinction event there? That's a great question and an open area of research. I mean, the planet was just blazing freaking hot. Yeah, it was really warm. And when I look through the list of extinctions, there's nothing that happens between the Paleocene and the Eocene. It's like, did everybody just, everything, just... yeah. Get there, comfortable? Yeah, there were some extinctions in that event, but you're right. It's nothing like the big extinctions uh, that I write about in the book. Um, and there's actually more so than extinction. That event is more famous for sort of just being this lightning bolt to evolution, where you suddenly get the beginnings of all these mammal groups. That right. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, if anything, it's known for its expansion of life. Right. So why wasn't it as lethal? Because um, that's it, when we see the the whales take off, the mammals yeah, take right. off. Fish diversified like crazy. I'm a fish freak. Yeah. And after the asteroid hits and yeah. the deck and traps and all that, right. fish diversify. They go from the, yeah, you know, right. the, the ammonites are out of the way and fish right. go crazy. Yeah. Mammals go crazy because the big dinosaurs are out of the way. Yeah, but it takes a while. So it takes like 10 million years and then there's the BETM and then there's really a big radiation. It's pretty weird. Um, some people explain the not being an extinction Maybe it's because uh, these things, large igneous provinces, which are these massive continent-scale volcanic events that cause a lot of the mass extinctions that I write about in the book, um, maybe they're worse if they happen on land than underwater. So this one might have been underwater because volcanoes on land also put all sorts of terrible stuff into the atmosphere like mercury and chlorine and fluorine and all this other stuff. But it also could be that the planet's gotten more resilient since the, so like the really big mass extinction 252 million years ago. There wasn't modern calcifying plankton, which for complicated reasons might make the ocean more susceptible to uh, um, oxygen loss. Uh, these are pretty... Are you saying that maybe the planet is getting more resilient in some ways? In some ways, that might be true. Uh, huh. In the first 250 million years or so of animal life, you can't, like you find black shales everywhere. It seems like there's a, um, the oceans aren't as oxygenated as the modern... Uh, and that might just be because of sort of that might have gone away in the past in more recent geological history because there are these biological innovations that are really changing how things are geochemical cycles work on the planet. But I don't I don't need to get into that. That's well, we kind of can. But, uh, <laughs> um, but the other the other thing is like Pangaea might have been an especially bad time for this to happen uh, for other reasons we can get into. Well, is that, well, let's let's, let's yeah. circle back around at the ends of the world, the book sure. itself. And it sounds like you got your writing chops, but then you got this idea for this book. And what is the book about? It was partly motivated by the fact that I had heard this discussion about, are we in the sixth mass extinction? And, all, and Everyone wants to know, is it now? Yeah, right. But that was always sort of just left as uh, assumed that everyone knows there's five mass extinctions. And I, I I knew about the dinosaur one, and I knew some about the big Permian one, but I wanted to... I didn't know there was five before. I thought yeah. I knew about two, but... Right. Well, sometimes it's just sort of mentioned offhand that there are five. And I thought, well, I want to read a book about these five mass extinctions. And I went to 
libraries and bookstores looking for that book, and I didn't really find one that covered all of them written for a popular audience. So, so is that how you pitched it. it? Is that how you pitched it? You're probably true. That and your agent or yeah, that and the fact that I think that there has been this interesting uh, sort of development in the last thirty years of mass extinction research, where in the eighties and nineties, sort of asteroids dominated the conversation because of the discoveries of the um, impact layer in nineteen eighty and uh, that crater in nineteen in the early nineties, but that in the last thirty years as researchers went around the world looking for evidence of asteroid impacts at the earlier mass extinctions, thinking they were going to find it, they didn't at any of the other mass oh, extinctions. Oh, so when the Alvarez father and son, right? Yeah. They inspired what year was that? Them. So that was 1980. So 1980. In 1980, we're kind of getting this a little bit backwards. I kind of yeah. wanted to walk through them all. Yeah, but... we can do that. We can do that too. <laughs> but there began to be like, oh, it was asteroids. That's what did it. Let's look at all these other extinctions. But right, and they didn't find any. They were looking for asteroids at all the other extinctions. And, and even the most hardcore sort of asteroid proponents would admit, like, I've been studying the Devonian or the Permian for a long time, and I, I have not found any layer of impact layer kind of so what could it be and in the last again the last few decades there's been this sort of interesting development that it seems like big climate changes that are related to a lot of the things that we're worried about today turn out to be really important in some of these mass extinctions so i thought there was well, a news hook to this to the story too well let's just back up for a yeah. moment when we look at the fossil record yeah we know there's big skips and big gaps right. in the fossil record. It's not so easy to dance to the fossil record because every now and then right. there's a big chunk missing. But right. how do we know that there was an extinction event? I mean, just basically looking at the fossil record, how do we know like, oh, there's a change here? Yeah, I mean, it, co it requires collecting tons and tons of fossils all over the world. So that you finally have enough that you can say something mean meaningful about them. And so there was the data, you need data. You yeah. Need, and that data is fossils. Yeah, and people even debate, so the biggest mass extinction ever, again, I'm jumping ahead here, but for a long time, people didn't think there was an extinction there, but they just thought there was a lot of rock missing. And then... The Permian-Triassic we're talking yeah, about, PT. Yeah, right. Um, and then there was sort of calculations like, well, how much rock would have to be missing for this not to be an extinction? It was just like, no. Well, I mean, that's the thing about the yeah. fossil record, because you have to look at what kind of things fossilize, right. number one, because yeah. not everything fossilizes. Yeah. I like some of the points you make in the book. It's like, well, there's big, yeah, right. there's areas that don't really have deposition, yeah. so therefore you don't get fossils from right. that. Right. But, but there's an accumulation of time, and... In the fossil record, some stuff is eroded, and there's just not a lot of good records right where these big events happen. Right. But, uh, and then there seems to be a bias because hard, shelly things like brachiopods and clamshells. Oh, yeah. But when you see those really durable things disappear, yeah, something big happened. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, the last few hundred years, we've lost a lot of big charismatic mammals, but you wouldn't really know it from the... I mean, some invertebrates have gone extinct, but they are really hardy for... Even the clams to go start going extinct. It really has to be hitting the fan. <laughs> well, let's go back. Sure. So there are five. And when I... Well, even that's now kind of up for today. People well, I know. I, I talked... We had Peter Ward on the show once, and Peter said, yeah. there's, there's a lot more than five. Yeah, yeah. 
And his whole thing is the Medea mm. hypothesis that, you know, we, versus Medea versus Gaia. Right. Gaia being sort of the hippie thing, the earth yeah. will heal itself. And he's like, no, the earth, Medea is the bad mother that wants yeah. to kill us. Right. Which is like, okay. But let's go back to the first one. Planet is 4.5 4. billion years old. The first, like, well-accepted fossil life is 3.5, I think. Right, one life shows up. Yeah. yeah, and then, but what's amazing is that you don't get animals until um, only around 600 up to 550-ish million years ago. So for about 3 billion years, the only most interesting thing going on on the planet is pond scum. And then... Pond scum. The boring some, billions. Yeah, yes. well, the boring billion. Yes. Yeah. So then you get these crazy snowball earth events. But then finally you get animals. And that's really... Once you have animals, you can start having mass extinctions, really, because they're specialized and they are easier to kill than bacteria, basically. Right. Um, they're, but they're needy. Yeah, they're needy. <laughs> animals um, need more things. Right. Plants need more things. Yeah. So I sort of start the book with a bonus extinction right at the beginning because <laughs> there's sort of this weird... We threw in one more. <laughs> yeah. There's this weird uh, sort of gelatinous world um, before the, edi- the Ediacaran. Ediacaran yeah. yeah. And that's Before seems, the Ediacaran. No, no, right. no the Ediacaran. And right. that seems to all get wiped out at the Cambrian explosion when you get all these bizarre lobster-looking things and... Swimming taco shells. Yeah, all those aliens that show up at the beginning of the Cambrian. There might actually be a mass extinction of these weird sort of jelly creatures before that. Um, so I throw that in. That's not actually usually considered one of the so-called Big Five. The first of the Big Five mass extinctions is the end Ordovician mass extinction 445 million years ago. So this is a world that's hundreds of millions of years before Pangaea even assembles and hundreds of millions of years before dinosaurs. Um, so this is a really alien planet and it's sort of dominated by weird squid like things and shells and trilobites and, um, it's a trilobite heyday. Yeah. Yeah. I like to say the Ordovician, they were like, yeah, there were sweet city, you know, and there were weird ones too. There were pelagic trilobites. So they're like just swimming through the seas. We sort of think about them as these like, I think I call them Roombas in the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that uh, description of them as Roombas. Yeah, so it's called the Sea Without Fish in the Ordovician, which is kind of an overstatement because there are fish. They're just not very important, and they're really right. simple. And the, right. world's, the world's dominated by these big, weird invertebrates. And then uh, it's possibly the second biggest mass extinction ever at the end of the Ordovician. Well, actually, what I'm when I uh, invited you here to talk with me okay. here in Lindsborg... Actually, in my uh, fossil coastline book, I've done a drawing of the six mass extinctions. Mm-hmm. You might, we'll debate the sixth one in a moment here, but I wrote down my understanding as best I could get it for the Ordovician. I wrote, and you can tell me as we go along mm-hmm. here if I have it right or not. At the end of the Ordovician, as we entered the Silurian about 444 million years ago, Ice Age, glaciation, right. sea levels drop. Uh, brachiopods and trilobites take a major hit. Yeah, that's a pretty, that, good, that's a pretty good summary of it. Uh, there's an ice age. Yeah, there's evidence for... How do we know there's an ice age at the end of or, the Ordovician? Well, I think it's kind of amazing that... So I'm from New England, where if you walk, if you hike around Maine or New Hampshire, you can see uh, on the rocks these things called glacial striations, which are sort of just these scratch marks. In the, like, yeah. The glaciers. Like fingernail marks in the rocks really? that were left there by the advance and retreat of really recent ice sheets at the end of the last ice age, only a few thousand years ago. And uh, at the end of the Ordovician, um, it's so long ago that the Sahara Desert, 
was not a desert. It was over the South Pole at the time. And in the middle of the Sahara today, you can find the same sorts of glacial striations that you find in New England in the middle of the rocks in the middle of the Sahara, but they're from the end of the Ordovician. Um, wow. Yeah, so there's all this evidence for ice all over the planet at the end of the Ordovician. And there's more wonky stuff, too. Like, you can look at... Um, so we know there was ice, just what? Because there was scraping. Yeah, there's, the... there's similar... There's, like, a lot of the same land features you see in parts of North America from the really recent Ice Age. Oops. You can, you can find from um, this time... 445 million years ago and there's other ways too there's paleontology i think people might have this idea of sort of this old-fashioned science of people just dusting off bones in the back of a natural history museum but the people i talked to were doing all this really um pretty technical research looking at isotopes and things um in fossils and you can if you know how to tease out the record from the isotopes you can also sort of reconstruct Isotopes are basically the chemical signature of a living creature, right? I mean... Hey, Ray and Peter, I'm not in this awesome interview, but I can shed some light here on what an isotope is. An isotope is an atomic element with similar chemical makeup, but with different atomic weights. You've heard of carbon-12 and carbon-16. They're isotopes of carbon. Now, unstable isotopes undergo spontaneous decay during which they emit radiation until they achieve a stable state, and this can happen over tens of thousands of years. It's called a half-life. This property of radioisotopes is useful in food preservation, archaeological dating of artifacts, geological dating of rocks and strata, and most awesomely, for medical diagnosis and treatment. There's the short answer. Mr. Wikipedia can help you listeners dive down deeper. Carry on, gents. I was talking about these sort of planktonic things that build their shells out of calcium carbonate earlier. But right. Clamshells do the same thing, and oysters and scallops and uh, brachiopods. Uh, so you can find fossils where they're made out of calcium carbonate, but they make those shells out of the water around them. So they record what the chemistry of the ocean is 445 million years ago in their wow, shells. Okay. And um, the data is there in their shells. Yeah, and it can be it can be because they're so old. There's a lot of discussion about whether it's still a reliable signal, but there's ways of kind of working around that. Um, can we extrapolate what the oxygen level? Oxygen is tough to get. There are. Well, I remember talking with Peter Ward. He was talking about oxygen levels in yeah. different areas. Like, well, how do you know what the oxygen is doing? The oxygen's hard, harder to reconstruct. Um, there are some interesting ways of. So we know it was really high, for instance, this weird time when there were giant bugs because bugs can only get so big when there's high oxygen. So that's kind of... Oh, all right. That's like, okay. Struck. Yeah. Yeah. The big bugs happen in the Carboniferous. Yeah. uh, Right, right. But that's just like kind of a... And there's a lot of charcoal everywhere in the Carboniferous because forest fires would have just been out of control because oxygen was so high. So that's sort of a crazy way of figuring out that there's a lot of oxygen. All right. So let's go back. Yeah. uh, Yeah. We're getting off track a little. Well, you could keep me on track too, Peter. We'll blame the beer on that. The, the ice, cheeseburger. We just had a couple of nice cheeseburgers, yeah. by the way. So, how do we know? So the ice, uh, the ice is around the planet. The glaciation. We see, we see the fossil record suddenly change. Right. I mean, there's a yeah. suddenly a lack and things well, are different. Yeah. The traditional explanation for this extinction is that before it, you have the continents are really flooded with really high sea levels, and that is providing a lot of habitat for all these creatures and these sort of shallow seas that are covering all the continents. So I went to Ohio, I went to Cincinnati, Ohio for the book, um, which, um, you know, today is in the middle of the country, but it was 
it's sort of the best place on earth to see this world from 450 million years ago because it was flooded with these shallow seas along with almost the rest of the entire continent and a lot of the other continents. So you can imagine if you put a ton of ice on Africa all of a sudden and you drop sea level by hundreds of feet, you're kind of draining all these shallow uh, seas on top of the continents and maybe you're destroying a lot of habitat that these animals like. What's interesting though is even animals in the deep it seems like are going extinct in this mass extinction. So that might have to do with the fact that the ocean circulation is changing and the oxygenation of the ocean is changing and you know, animals can keep up with slow change, but if you sort of just change the whole structure of the ocean really quickly. Everybody's trying to play catch up all at once and yeah, not everybody plays. Yeah, it doesn't. Right. My little drawing here says 86% loss of. It's something like that, yeah. In the aftermath of this, actually, there's a radiation of fishes, too, where. It's the age of fish? Yeah, where you go we from. We get this... into the Silurian, into the Devonian. And in the Devonian, yeah, well, we know it's frequently called the age of fish because right. that's when my fishy brethren were really diversifying. There's every kind of funky, weird fish, weird including fish. our ancestral fish. Right. The lobe fins are doing really well. Actually, the placoderms, the Devonian, uh, the big, uh, the big, big placoderms. That a placoderm is. A uh, placoderm is a really well. I mean, the biggest. Most famous version of it is Dunkelosteus, which is this really scary, uh, like bus-sized fish with these guillotine, self-sharpening guillotine blades for teeth. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> um, but they were just encased in basically armor. But at the yeah. end, of, so number two, uh, we suffer late Devonian, seventy-five percent loss, and what I wrote down here was a low oxygen crisis causes a huge biotic crisis. Placoderms go extinct. And this is a series of extinction events that happen at about, um, looks like uh, 375. 375-ish, yeah. So, yeah. And um, the placoderms go extinct. Reef systems throughout the world take a major hit and sea levels drop dramatically. And maybe there's a series of events is what I'd written on my little... Well, sea level seems to be going up and down like pretty frequently, and there might even be a rise during the big mass extinction. So, well, what the, go, what gets screwed up in the Devonian? The Devonian is really weird. It's what's a, the culprit? Yeah, um, something so, going on. Yeah, so the placoderms get hit really hard in this big pulse of extinction at three seventy five, but then they limp on to the end of the Devonian and get wiped out in another extinction event that I sort of lump in with this one, just because. In the Devonian, there's a series of mass extinctions that's hitting the planet, but th there's just a, the bad time. Well, I mean, it's a really transformative time for the planet because, and that might have to do with why it was such an unstable kind of crazy world is that, I mean, this is the time in earth history when plants and trees start colonizing the continents. Right. Um, and oh, wait, yeah, you write a little about. Yeah. I mean, they might this, have caused the, the mass extinctions. Actually, the, all right, right. Explain that one to me. Yeah. I was like getting lost in the book there, but yeah. Plants actually end up maybe not being good for other... Well, in the long run, they're great, but their introduction to the planet was sort of this... Might have been this kind of traumatic thing where... Suddenly there's plants. <laughs> yeah, for all of Earth history, the continents kind of look like the feed from the Mars Curiosity rover. And then, oh, yeah, and then, all right. And then all of a sudden, you cover the whole all the continents with plants and trees. You're really messing with these big uh, plants chew up the rocks and release a lot of phosphorus, uh, which today we put on our crops because it's fertilizer, but it's thought that maybe this was, a lot of it was released to the ocean. And today the fertilizer we put on our crops ends up in the ocean and causes these big algae blooms, which cause dead zones 
in the Gulf of Mexico and in the Baltic Sea. And in the Devonian, Which is really kind of ironic that ancient ocean stuff is screwing up the ocean. Yeah, right. But it might be the same mechanism where plants are sort of chewing up the earth and releasing a lot of phosphorus and causing the same sort of dead zones. In the oh, really? That's how it works. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then there's a big ice age at the end of the Devonian, which... What? The ice is back? Yeah. So uh, trees and soils suck down a lot of CO2 out of the air. And so it might have actually been the trees that are causing this big ice age at the end because they're so successful at taking, at sequestering carbon. Like today we're trying, people are talking about planting more trees to draw down carbon. It might be the case that 359 million years ago, they were so good at that, that they plunged the planet into an ice age. (laughs) But in the Devonian sort of, there's this sort of famous paradigm about this tree explanation that was from Tom Algio at University of Cincinnati and his collaborator, uh, Sheckler, I think he's at George. Yeah, he's maybe George the Tech. trees and the plants were a lethal yeah. mechanism. Yes, and I. Which is an interesting idea. It's a really interesting idea. Uh, this, and so I want really wanted to talk to Tom Algio, and I did. And but this is definitely, I would say, it's the most mysterious mass extinction. Still, there's some people who buy the, the plant explanation. Other people will um, attribute it to something else. There was, there is a big volcanic event that people are trying to date to see if it is at the right time, and it seems like it's somewhere in the ballpark. So. Some of these mass extinctions, it could be the case that you, you know, there's not necessarily just one cause, but you're just kind of rolling snake eyes 10 times in a row. And it's all, a lot of things. Yeah, I know. It gets a little squishy. And yeah. Uh, and yeah, but we just know something happened. There's so these, yeah. you know, you're kind of spitwatting ideas. Right. And the one that starts sticking. Yeah. There, I mean, there's another idea even that it was invasive species that contributed a lot to this extinction because the land masses are kind of coming, starting to come together. We're still before Pangaea, but things are moving in that direction. And so new things are showing up where they shouldn't be and wiping out local fauna. And, Is yeah. there, I know you mentioned it somewhere in the book too, maybe in the Permian, but sometimes the idea, I mean, we're always kind of, we beat ourselves up because we are maybe the destroyer species and mm-hmm. are we the species that has really screwed the place up or, but there's no precedent in the history of right. life, yeah. but there might be precedents in the history of life where it's mono species. Right. It's not diversity. It's like one species is so yeah. successful. They eradicate. Does that happen here yeah. in the Paleozoic somewhere? I definitely try to push back on that idea. Cause I think there are some analogs. I mean the idea that we're the first destroyer. There were the species. first life, the first life form that's ever like caused extinctions, which is so definitely, definitely, not, definitely not true. Well, yeah. The mushrooms. Yeah, but I think there's kind of uh, lessons to be learned from the trees of the Devonian where they were really disruptive at the beginning, but then the world and them collaborated to make the planet even more rich in the long run. Along. Yeah. It, in the so, long run. But, right. But so I'm hoping plants, that model we follow rather than we're just this big We're plants asteroid. nearly as recognizable as we would think of a tree even back in the Devonian. The first ones were really weird. They were these, uh, basically didn't have roots at all. They were these big, I think they were in like the horsetail family. Yeah. But they yeah. Were, yeah. So they were really strange. I hung out with a paleobotanist who's trying to beat some of this into my head. Yeah. And they didn't have leaves. They just had like these photosynthesizing sort of fiddleheads on top of them. And they were really strange at first. I know if, if I could time travel back, that's I want to go to the Devonian yeah. because that's when our fishy ancestors left, crawled right. out onto land. And I think that's a pretty amazing transition. But 
that's how we came to be sitting here chatting. But uh, we're kind of moving through the ages yeah, here. Let's. Yeah. I'd want to go. What's fishing. next? I'd you want to go fishing then? In the Devonian, yeah, for sure. What, what would you strong. want to catch? Well, you need some really strong line for those duckalosteuses. Do you want to land a duckalosteus? I think so. I think that'd be neat. Hey, well, what are you gonna do with it once you land it? That's a good. It's probably pretty mean once it's on the boat. Can you imagine that? <laughs> it's trying to like snap at you. And... Yeah. <laughs> But moving through the ways the planet can kill you, okay, we come to the biggest one, the big, the big, yeah. big, big, right? All right, so we're talking the Permian-Triassic event, and I have written, the great dying kills off nine out of ten animal and plant species. Huge volcanic eruptions cause a carbon dioxide crisis. Trilobites, my beloved trilobites, go extinct here. And life is completely reorganized after this yeah so let's dive into the permian triassic extinction event peter what happened on the planet and how bad was it it was really bad um i mean how bad come on for it's hard to find fossils for 10 million years uh after this mass extinction what do you mean um, something happens that you can't even find anything well like so everything's you, dead you go from these weird coral reefs at the end of the permian and then after the extinction you get piles of bacterial slime all over the planet. So, really, and it's it's the first time since before the age of animal life that these things are sort of pervasive all over the world. They're stromatolites. They're the things that you find three and a half billion years ago. All the stromatolites kind of come back and yeah, because there's like so, that's all there is. There's so little animal life. Like what animal life does in the oceans is it churns up the seafloor, and it's hard to like you, you can think about how long it takes uh, bacteria to kind of make gross film in your bathtub. Uh, if you have things turning up the seafloor, that's going to disappear. But animals get so wiped out that it, these microbial sort of mat communities are able to flourish again and build these big structures just because there's not really any competition from the animals because they've been so hit so hard. So that's, I mean, that's just one way that the rocks look really weird after this mass extinction that doesn't look like any of the others. You wrote a piece in the Atlantic earlier this year on the Permian extinction, like how oh, okay, yeah. horrible it was. And you were driving through Kansas, I believe. Yeah, right. So you put me Kansas. in as like, I want to yeah. see these scab lands in Kansas. Right, yeah. How bad, how screwed up was the planet? What, I mean, paint me, yeah, okay, paint so, me a dismal picture, man. I, yeah. I mean, let's go dark here. Right. Um, it's the end of the world yeah, as we knew it. So what happens is that, so sort of just to set up the animal life that's around, it's not, this is before dinosaurs still, um, but you do have stuff, big lumbering beasts and things on land, but they're kind of these weird things that are more closely related to us than they are to dinosaurs, these right, synapsids. Synapsids yeah. are, and there are synapsids are kind of proto-mammal friends. Yeah. Our, our, our kin in a way. Yeah. Right, our cousins, distant cousins. Um, but there's weird big reptiles around. Um, and then in the ocean, you have sort of a Paleozoic world still. You have trilobites and sea scorpions. And the reefs look like they have for all of animal history so far. And then at the end of the, after the extinction, things look totally different. And in the meantime, what happened was in Siberia, enough lava erupted out of Siberia that it could cover the lower 48 United States a kilometer deep in lava. So if you go to Google maps today and you put on like the satellite view you can still sort of see these brownish rocks all over siberia and those are what's left of these big volcanic eruptions how long do they blow they 
they were going off for hundreds of thousands of years. Hundreds of thousands of years. But what's weird is that the extinction happens all at once, 300,000 years after they start. Really? Yeah, so... All right, so what's so going on there? It seems like it happened, which is pretty scary for us, is that... Oh, I know. Yeah. I get it. The magma underground starts hitting fossil fuels, basically. Because <sighs> they're coming up through this, the Tung Tunguska Coal Basin in Russia, where there's lots of natural gas and coal and carbon-rich limestones. And so uh, it seems like there's a change in the eruption style where they just start igniting all this carbon underground. But what you're saying... The volcanic uh, eruptions actually ignite the ancient, the more ancient right. fossil yeah. remains, basically fossil fuel of the day. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like right. what we're doing. Yeah. Is then it hits the accelerated button. Yeah. So the volcanoes basically start, basically start burning the ancient coals uh, from the Devonian. And well, the yeah, Carboniferous. Yeah, that had already happened. So all those big, big forests from long ago, they're fossilized then. Yeah. And this starts just spewing even more carbon dioxide into the air, like it's volcanoes plus that. Yeah. And then we see just everything. There's a there's a cascading something. Happens. Yeah. After hundreds of thousands of years, the volcanoes going off and probably being pretty unpleasant. Almost everything on the planet dies within you know, a few thousand years, and there's indications that it got. 10 degrees Celsius warmer. So today we're trying to stay at 2 degrees C by 2100. This was 10 degrees of warming. It got so hot that the tropical oceans were the temperature of very hot soup, as one paleontologist put it. You described mega hurricanes. Yeah, hypercanes. Hypercanes? Yeah. What, is this the heyday for hypercanes? Well, it, the, the, I said the oceans got so hot over 105 degrees or something like that in the tropics, which when you plug those numbers into climate models, these weird things called hypercanes start popping out. So a guy I talked to, Lee Kump, thought that one thing that was going on was you had these, the oceans were going and they were losing their oxygen because it was getting so hot. And when they lose their oxygen, these nasty bacteria that make hydrogen sulfide, which is just kind of poison swamp gas, you can find it in like manure pits. Sometimes people get killed by it. It's just really, the noxious gas. It's really deadly at like really low concentrations, but it might've been sort of, suffusing the ocean when it got really hot in this mass extinction. And then you also have these hypercanes, which are 500 mile an hour hurricanes, which is way faster than a tornado. And it's a hypercane. It's a hurricane. Is there any evidence? I mean, can you know, that's, that's just the theoretical thing. That theoretical. This, the computer says that's possible. Yeah. And this guy might've been going on. Yeah. 500 mile an hour winds because the continent is so vast is everything's so hot. And well, these would have been sweeping in off the ocean and they would have been maybe sucking up all this awful hydrogen sulfide gas. So you can imagine. Oh my, wait a minute. So like not only is it a hurricane of unimaginable <laughs> intensity, yeah. intensity, it's full of toxic gas. Yeah. So you can imagine if you're some poor <laughs> synapsid hanging out on the beach, getting hit by one of these, it wouldn't be very fun. This doesn't sound really like, the planet's a very nice place. No. The planet is out to kill us. It's not out to what kill us. What are we us. doing here? I mean, it's just I no... actually, I did come away from your book thinking like, wow. Yeah. We're lucky to even yes. be sitting here. Yeah. I mean, that was my big takeaway. Like, I think about that all the time, that we're, we're lucky. And not necessarily the planet's out to kill us, but I don't know. I mean, you paint some grim pictures, dude. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so basically it's killer volcanoes that then maybe yeah. ignited the fossil fuels. Yeah. So is that a warning sign for what we're doing now? Yeah, I mean, well, so... 
Because we are hell-bent on burning fossil fuels till there are no more fossil fuels. Uh, hopefully, things don't go down that road. But if they do, the Permian sort of shows you what the worst-case scenario is. And in some ways, we might actually be putting CO2 into the air faster than these volcanoes. So more CO2 came out of the ground than we could ever put into the, into the air ourselves, which might seem to kind of get us off the hook. But it turns out for some things, for some processes, like this thing, ocean acidification I was talking about earlier, where CO2... Uh reacts with the ocean with seawater and makes it more acidic that really is more about the rate of co2 emissions more than like the total at the end so we might be going 10 times faster than these volcanoes were in, in siberia maybe it might have been the same rate but it's hard to figure that out in the rock record so given the sort of uncertainty around these things this really is a big warning sign in the geological record to say don't mess with this stuff well, we're kind of skipping for. I'm almost want to skip forward to the. Are we in it now, yeah. or not? But I want to get to the. <laughs> we got two more to go, right? Yeah. Well, the so, good thing is the next one's basically the same thing happens all over again. There is this other extinction that happens next, and following along, if you get the scorecards, <laughs> we get through the PT. But then I actually there's the JT, the TJ. Yeah. And um, eight, it's only eighty percent though goes extinct there, but once again. Volcanism, carbon dioxide crisis, conodonts, mm. which were bloody freaking everywhere, everywhere, go extinct. And it is the end of the adiosaurs. And there was maybe a possibility of an asteroid strike. Well, there's for a long time. That's people, what I wrote. Yeah, my, I'm right, reading off of my right. old chart. People in the early 2000s, there's this uh, sort of 62 mile circular system of lakes in Quebec called the Manicouagan Crater that some people thought might have had something to do with this extinction, but then they got better dating on it, and it turns out it was 14 million years before this extinction. So that was sort of a surprise to the asteroid extinction community because this was a uh, this is a crater that looks big enough to cause an extinction and not much went extinct. And instead, there's this another volcanic event, which you can see if you're Where in Where the volcanoes this time? Yeah, so if you're in Manhattan today and you look across the... Hudson River, you'll see the New Jersey Palisades, and those are basically this. Those are the volcanoes, those are the, the, the culprits then? Yeah, so. So we have the Russian volcanoes to blame, the Permian. Right. Yeah. Now there's the Jersey volcanoes. The Jersey volcanoes that you can find also the same, the same kind of like magma dated to the same time in Brazil, Nova Scotia, Spain, Morocco. It's this huge, as Pangea is tearing apart at the seams, this huge volcanic event is sort of happening on both sides of the Atlantic, but the Atlantic isn't very really a thing yet. Oh, right. The yeah. Atlantic is the newer ocean. The Pacific is the older right. ocean. Right. right. So that the Atlantic is, take that, you East Coast people. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the Watch Tongue Mountains in New Jersey, where now they're just covered in sort of subdivisions and malls and stuff. Those are, that's lava from these mass extinctions. So they, they were as volcanic eruptions yeah. spreading the opening up. Yeah. Of the earth, literally, and the ocean then, too. Yeah, it's about the same, it's around the same time that Pangea is pulling apart. And it might be the case that the sort of crust was a little thinner, so maybe it was easier to... Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea that Pangea was maybe the coming together continents right. cause it, but then as it comes apart... Supercontinents are weird, and weird stuff seems to happen every time they show up. So, I'm, I'm writing... Right, there is a cycle to supercontinent. Yeah. Because it goes back before the Cambrian, too, right? Right, and the previous time there was a... A supercontinent was called Rodinia before animals existed. And when it broke up, it's associated with this crazy, crazy climate event called Snowball Earth. 
All right. So it might have something to do with the supercontinent, but it seems like things kind of go haywire when the planet's dealing with these things. Well, what I love about your book, I know one type of way forward, is like you go way forward, you go into oh, the, right. you go to the future, yeah. which is like, well, where are we going? But, uh, but uh, actually, well, let's talk about conodonts for just a second. We did mention them, and uh, they go extinct then. And conodonts are used by oil people and geologists to date rocks, and they were flourishing the ocean, and it took forever for people to ever figure out what they even were. Yeah. They're really Can you describe them to our listening audience? It's worth Googling pictures of them because they're these weird little, some look like tiny little combs, and some are these little... I don't know. They're just these little spiky objects that are tiny. Um, and it turns out they're the f- teeth of these eel-like things. Um, but yeah, they're important for oil geologists because they conveniently change color to from like white to more oh, really? orange okay. to darker, depending on how much they've been heated up. So it tells you about the sort of thermal history well, of rocks. One of the things I love look, in, looking through your book is that um, you come up with some really good uh, little quips and I, or, you know, alliterations or little memorable phrases. I, somewhere in here you quoted someone saying, conodonts are like God. They're everywhere. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah, that's from a but book that, about conodonts I read. It was a little dry, but occasionally there would be good quotes from it. <laughs> yeah, the conodont specialists, they have their, yeah, they're in. There we go. That that was happening. I wrote that down. There, I'm on my cue. Volvos or Volcanoes. Yeah, that was that's Peter Ward actually. Was that Peter who said that? Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's volvos or volcanoes making the CO two, the climate's going to do the same thing. Basically, is his point. That's what something... we're doing now and yeah. in the past, it would seem to be volcanoes that were always screwing things up and throwing things into extinction events. But now we're basically creating our own volcano with volvos and automobiles. Yeah, I mean, if what the volcano, if what the volcanoes were doing that was bad is making a lot of CO two and going in the air, then. Climate doesn't care where it comes from, whether it's from a tailpipe or from Siberia. The planet's only got so much oomph and the carbon's going to go somewhere. But hey, Peter Brannan, what happened at the end of the Cretaceous? So we made it through uh, the days, of the, we made it into the days of the dinosaurs. Actually, before we get there, though, there's a pluvial event. It's before the Triassic. I know. So I, no, it's in the Triassic. Yeah. I mean, it's before the extension. Yeah, I know. That's why I wanted yeah, to mention right, it before right. the KT, because yeah. there are these little, I, I, the Carnian pluvial event, I, there was a previous um, uh, guest we had on the show, we were talking about it, I'd never heard about it, but it's kind of interesting in that it rained in the planet. It looks like there's evidence for, when I've lived in Ketchikan for almost 40 years, and I know about the rain event there, but mm-hmm. it rained around the world. Yeah. What's the evidence to tell us about that? I mean, all around the world, you see evidence for sort of dry-looking landforms in the rocks turning into these big lakes. The biggest, I think, river delta in Earth history is right at this event. Really? Uh, yeah, there's tons of uh, just erosion from on land, so just sort of weathering happening from storm, like huge storms and evidence for that in Italy and the UK. Uh, so there's evidence for just tons and tons of rain. Pangea is a very dry, sort of arid supercontinent, but then you have this weird episode where it gets really wet all of a sudden. 
it's a really interesting and then after that the dinosaurs seem to flourish well tons of stuff starts is flourish. that when the crocodilians lose their have their no so the the carnian pluvial event you get the big first like true dinosaur well you get dinosaurs 10 million years before this but they're sort of small and important things in the southern part of pangaea and then after the carnian pluvial event they sort of uh spread all over the planet possibly because this you know, the more the wetter habitats let them sort of hopscotch around the planet. Uh, you get so, the, I mean, I like to think rain gave us dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to put it. So it, it fits on a t-shirt. <laughs> right, yeah. That would make a great, a great illustration. <laughs> Only three of us would buy it. Though. Yeah, yeah. But you get the first mammals right after this, the first crocodilians, I'm pretty sure. The first modern coral reefs show up after this. So it's this weird event where, kind of like the one I was talking about earlier, where... It's almost more famous for the sort of bloom of life after it than the, the extinctions. And I'm glad you brought up the after the Permian-Triassic, which is the worst thing ever. But life comes back really differently. Really differently. I don't want people to get the impression that this book is like overly depressing because I just as easily could have made it about sort of the mass radi- radiations that happen after the extinctions. Yeah, well, every time everything's flattened down, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. There's an explosion of life afterwards, it seems. Yeah, and in some ways the the... Great dying was the best thing ever happened for us. I mean, it it sort of gave birth to the modern world that we have still today. We have birds or dinosaurs and mammals and crocodilians and coral reefs. So that sort of came out of the wreckage of this really bad mass extinction. Did you have people writing in after they read this book, like, Peter, what's the point of life if (laughs) if we're all going to... Did you get a lot of... It was kind of split between... So there's some of that, but there was also a lot of... um, I found this book strangely consoling in a way which i did too because i think geological time really helps you get some perspective on i mean it's easy to drive yourself crazy reading headlines today and everything moves so fast but really stepping out of your own time i find therapeutic in that what it's not so bad now no i mean i don't want to underplay how bad it is what we're doing now but we are just a small part of a really long interesting story it hasn't all been leading up to humans Planet. Not all about us. Yeah, the planet's been many different planets, and right now it's this one, and someday it'll be a different one. But I guess oh, that can start sounding nihilistic if you go too far with it, that it doesn't matter. But Well, we're almost to the uh, uh, number five. Okay. So number five is, well, let's go there. The pluvial event and the rain well, rain gave us dinosaurs, and uh, the dinosaurs flourished, the big dinosaurs. We still have dinosaurs today because they're, they're flying around the skies around us. But uh, go ahead. But they had to first, the end Triassic mass extinction, which is after the event, the dinosaurs uh, sort of had to, were waiting in the wings, even though they do uh, sort of radiate after this pluvial event, the planet was sort of being dominated by these Oh, wait, I did skip the Triassic. Yeah, That's yeah. right. I'm sorry. Did yeah. I? So just the, in the same way that the mammals had to kind of wait for the dinosaurs to get wiped out to kind of take over the planet. There's still a lot of dinosaurs around, but... Um, but in the, in a similar way, the dinosaurs sort of had to wait for these strange crocodilians that dominated the Triassic to get wiped out in this mass extinction before they could sort of have... So there was, there's another event. The, I mean, well, I was that's, no, we took the Conodont one. That's the same one as the... Oh, it is. All right. There's the Triassic, Triassic. Yeah. Duh. All right. Okay. Right. So oh, we find... Yeah. Track. Oh, I'll blend the beer. We've set the stage now. There's... The, so the crocodilians the, take a hit, though, at the end of the Triassic. Yeah. They came in all different forms. Um... And the adiosaurs, which are different. Yeah. Well, no, they're considered in this like crocodilian, kind of crocodilian yeah. spectrum. All right. Yeah, and they sort of held all these different niches in the ecosystem. And then after this extinction, you really only have these little like dog-sized 
the crocodilians and the dinosaurs, suddenly you start getting giant dinosaur footprints everywhere. And for the next 135 million years, they kind of run the roost until the asteroid comes. Or the volcanoes. Or the, volcanoes. Or the double combo. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. So we get to the end of the Cretaceous 66 million years ago. There's one very bad day. But you kind of kind of split the diff there in a way because you go out to Princeton and you talk to the opposing camp. You talk to... Right. I talked to Gerda Keller, which... Is anathema to the asteroid people. Yeah. Um, and she's a very, she's a very divisive figure because she's been saying for a long time that the asteroid really had no impact at all, which I think puts her in a pretty small minority of people. She has an amazing biography. Um, yeah, you go into a little bit of that in the book. Yeah. yeah. And she also doesn't shy away from giving a journalist very spicy quotes about other uh, people <laughs> in her field, which is, I appreciate, but it's, a, it's, one of the reasons why there's some people who <laughs> didn't right. like that I even talked to her. But what was interesting in the book is that other people who weren't Gerda Keller were going to these big, uh, vol- this big volcanic event in India that just so happens. Right. So that's Gerda's uh, premise is that it was. Yeah. These are the Deccan traps in right. India. Basically, India was sliding around and. Yeah. Uh, and then Pangea, once it lets loose from Pangea, yeah. there's a, well, can you describe what happens there geologically in the volcano? Well, yeah, India hadn't yet crashed into Asia and made the Himalayas yet. So it's, uh, it's still, it's breaking off from Gondwana, which is the s- southern part of Pangea. But uh, a huge volcanic event, just like the other ones I was talking about, just so happens to take place right around the mass extinction. So before I said... The Russian ones in the really big mass extinction was a kilometer deep of lava in the lower 48. For the Deccan Traps, it's something like 600 feet of lava covering the lower 48 United States. So, Still a lot. Right. So it's not as big as the Siberian Traps, but this is not a, this is nothing to sneeze at, this event. So and How long were they blown? The, the... On the scale of millions of years. So they were going before the asteroid hit. And when I was researching the book, people were starting to take seriously this idea that maybe they were sort of just puttering along and then when the asteroid hit it messed up the, right. the planet so much that the they went into hyperdrive and started the most voluminous period of the eruptions might have happened kind of at the same time as the asteroid and there might be some causal connection um since the book came out people have are still working on this stuff and there have been some contradictory results where some people have them really going crazy right before the asteroid which just seems like a crazy the, 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 the volcano going yeah. right before and some might be too late to really make a difference um, so I think the smart money is still on the asteroid causing most of the devastation, but it is just a bizarre, maybe just a bizarre coincidence that you have this event, this vol- these volcanoes going off, or there is some connection. Well, I think what you talk about in the book is that there's cascading events that sometimes mm-hmm. when things go bad, there's just another bad thing that comes right. along and there's luck or fate or, or the devil yeah. Uh, another thing comes along and it's a cascading things when things get bad and just when you're maybe recovering there's another thing so yeah. the volcanoes are going off and then life is tough this rock from outer right. space hits yeah. us 66 million years ago so you yeah. are there's irrefutable evidence at this point right I, I, yeah yeah I mean even Gerda's accepting that no, <laughs> See, no. That, that's what makes her like oh the, okay so the she's... biggest outlier she just thinks it was like uh, you know, the Earth. It was inconsequential. Didn't, it didn't even care about it, yeah. But did she admit at least that a rock? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, But it didn't do anything. Yeah, she just thinks it was hundreds of thousands of years before that extinction. 
Oh, or before, and then I think so. I think that's that. It was also. I think she also says somewhere in there that like larger asteroids had hit earlier and nothing. Yeah, happened. well, that was the the one in Quebec I was talking about earlier. I think one of the like the as I was saying this paradigm shift sort of happened where it used to be all about asteroids, and more recently it's been about these weird tectonic events. There was a big asteroid at the end of the dinosaurs, but there's not much evidence for the older extinctions, and there are times when big asteroids hit. And not a ton goes extinct, and so she was pointing to those those events to Other sort of events. bolster her case that the the one that hit Mexico wasn't a big deal either. But I think that's a tougher case to make. So you are a, you went to Chicxulub. I did, yeah. How was that? It's funny. I mean, it's a beautiful is it a tourist world. event or it's like nobody tourist, is no. like there's... this is where the dinosaurs went extinct. Come see it. There's a little sign there. Yeah, right? there's like a little um, plaster monument in the middle of the town square that says 66 million years ago an asteroid hit here and it has these kind of goofy little dinosaur sculptures but when i went there i was the only person looking at it and it was they were setting up for like an easter festival and it was sort of hidden behind a truck and this is not the that's the chicxulub yeah, monument over there yeah this was not this a uh, big tourist attraction i like to think in a way that we are all chicxulub survivors are we we are i mean we we are. We survived all the, the mass Chicxulub extinctions. Survivors Club. That yeah. You and I are part of it. We're all part of it, man. We made it through every mass extinction. I know. I wanted to do that as a t-shirt, but like <laughs> nobody would get it. Like you and I would buy it. Five-time mass extinction survivor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bring on number six, man. <laughs> so, uh, so it's a very bad day. Do you... Uh, what is the site in North Dakota? That, the that Tannis right? site. Yeah. Not tennis, the tennis site. What's yeah. your? Do you have an opinion about the tennis site? Do you want to go there? I mean, it sounds spectacular. Because they broke it in like the New Yorker. The New Yorker, yeah. And it wasn't you. It was another writer. Well, yeah, and he actually. Did you broke... know about the tennis site before that? No, no one did because he actually broke the embargo. So as a science journalist, you're not supposed to write about things before they come out, and they're embargoed until the study comes out. And so most science journalists were sort of taken. Because uh, the back paper by was that. still yeah, the paper hadn't been written, and there are all these amazing claims in this story, and no one else had pretty a amazing. To Can you describe what the tank? I mean, I don't really is. remember that it, that well, but it looks like you know this is a frozen in time uh, picture of the day of the asteroid impact, where things are just sort of getting swept away in these landslides, and it's a pretty remarkable claim, but yeah. So I haven't really kept up with that story. I know a lot of paleontologists when they heard about it were kind of blown away by the details and wanted to sort of study it, but I don't know. But Alvarez himself went to the site. Yeah, yeah, I think he might have, yeah. So, I don't know. I haven't really kept up with that story. It is, it is, it does sound sensational. I'm curious because, you know, you're going to be in Lawrence and the stuff is in Lawrence, maybe. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Huh. Because De Palma's associated with... Oh, that's right, yeah. KU? Yeah. Let's go there tomorrow. <laughs> I'll see you there tomorrow morning. Yeah. Well, I gotta you heard it here. All right, you got to go. <laughs> Well, uh, you no, can, there's tsunami deposits all around the Gulf of Mexico from this mass extinction. So they're in rivers in Texas. I went to one of them where. Oh, right. That's actually there. in the book you do that. Yeah. That's right. This guy's Longhorn Ranch. He just happens to have a little uh, outcrop on a river on his property that people from all around the world come to study because they're called tsunamiites. And they're rocks that were left behind from the tsunamis that were sloshing around the Gulf of Mexico after the asteroid. Do they date at the right point? Oh, yeah. Point? Yeah. There's like, 66 point. Yeah, and there's spherule, like glass spherules from the um, melt rock in the in the layer, so it's definitely the right time. I was with Kirk Johnson in um, 2000 when we found him in North Dakota near Marmoth. Mm. Of course, he knew what he was looking at. I was like, yeah. what? 
Yeah, right. So here's the lair, and he found it, and it, it, it was the first site in North Dakota, which is actually was only like a couple of miles from the Tannis site. Mm, yeah. We were that close. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to go to Hell Creek. I've never been up to Really? Uh, it's yeah. head north. Right. Yeah. Get an I 35 and don't stop. You know, yeah. head north. But uh, all right, so let's, here we are. We're um, Cretaceous, and once again, actually, afterward, the, after the asteroid, I'm a, I'm a believer in the asteroid, and I think, you know, there were the volcanoes going on, so a bad day got even worse. And, um, and of course, my friend Kirk has been one of the, uh, the guys really working on the asteroid impact, and he says the evidence is overwhelming. Oh, yeah, most people, and I was most there. people I was say that. Yeah, and, you yeah, know, I mean, yeah, giant rock from outer space can really screw up the place. But I was going to say I was out in Pullman uh, the day that uh, St. Helens blew. Mm. I was like 300 miles from the volcano. And I saw the midday sky. This is one volcano turned from not a cloud in the sky to as black as it is outside now and two inches of ash on the ground. And that was just stunning. And to think of what volcanoes can do to the planet. Yeah. Yeah, these are both big, big forces going on. But But you were going to say? I was just going to say that, uh, so the whole thing where big asteroids have hit before and nothing really like didn't really care that much. Some people would argue that the the location of the asteroid impact at the end of the age of dinosaurs is what is a big reason why it was so what lethal. made it so bad. Why, yeah. why, why is that off the coast? Sort of in the ocean. It was in the yeah, ocean. Yeah, it was like in the shallow ocean, but it hit this big, what's called a carbonate bank. So just calcium carbonate, which when you just vaporize it, you make a lot of CO2 and you also make a lot of uh, sulfuric acid and stuff. And, so a lot of bad, it, there might have been a warming or acidification thing afterwards, and it might have been, it might have Especially made it, the location of it was... It hit the rock, the kind of rocks it hit, yeah, rather than the one in Quebec hit just sort of inert Canadian shield rock, which isn't as, uh, you could come more. up with explanations for why it's not as bad. Not as bad, huh. So there are maybe weak, vulnerable spots that the asteroid happened to hit. Yeah, it was the maybe the biggest asteroid in a billion years, and it hit the worst part of the planet that it could have hit. Ouch. So talking about the uh, the big mess, I think I've seen some of your articles. I was reading, I haven't read them all, but I was reading through your list of magazine, uh, you know, some of the titles for some of the articles. Uh, you do make the case that we're screwing the place up, that we are spewing carbon into the atmosphere like nobody's business. We are headed in a cataclysmic direction, but... We haven't nearly seen what, you know, the destruction that can happen to truly mass extinction that we like right. in the Permian, everything pretty much died. Like, and you were talking to uh, Doug Irwin at Smithsonian, yeah, right. Right. who's making the point that, you know, it's not so bad yet. So, yeah, well, I don't think I'm simplifying even, yeah, it, but I don't think he was even saying that. And I think like, um, like editors can give your articles kind of provocative headlines that people just read those and they get yeah. mad about. And let's so, pump it up. Yes. Yeah. So this argument that we're not in the six mass extinction wasn't that we haven't been awful, but that it's supposed to be scary and also hopeful that because we haven't reached the levels of extinction as these other mass extinctions yet. 
there's still sort of time to save the world, that these are sort of the last few decades to centuries that we can actually avert the worst. And I think there's sort of a risk when people will just read headlines about, oh, it's already a mass extinction, that you can get fatalistic, that, oh, the world's already over, and what's the use? Um, but this is actually like the one time we have to sort of avert the worst. And what's scary is that on the road to a mass extinction, there might be kind of these tipping points where, you know, it seems like the world's sort of taking a beating. Right, I think you're making that point that there's these yeah. tipping points yeah. where then it starts cascading. And yeah, and then you can't control it anymore. Then you, it, yeah, there's that's like, out of your hands, yeah. So we don't want to, we might be edging up to that point and not know where it is. So that makes conservation even more important now because we don't know kind of where the edge is. If that's how mass extinctions play out, as like a house of cards, power grid failure sort of model. Right, you talk about the power grid thing. Yeah. And no one really saw it coming and you can't really right. expect it. Yeah, because right? big, complex, dynamic systems like a global ecosystem, they're very hard to predict. And sometimes they're these sort of non-linear events where, you know, in a power grid failure, there's a software bug in a plant in Ohio, I think, was responsible for this major eastern seaboard power grid in the early 2000s. Right, nobody's, like, that was never part of what they even considered. No, and we still don't really understand how that kind of played out, how that sort of cascaded. Um, and so it could be that ecosystems are similarly kind of unpredictable and vulnerable to these big sort of cascades. Yeah, I mean, I have hope that science has got it all figured out. We kind of have a you know, notion that, but then there's all the we, the known unknown, right? right. <laughs> and actually you do uh, give like a page or two credence to the idea of maybe AI destroying oh, okay. us, the paperclip scenario. A lot of people who are paid to study AI are genuinely worried about these things, but I hear they're like people describe them and they kind of just sound like fairy tales to me. But the logic is kind of makes perfect, straightforward sense that if you invent an AI that is sort of almost omnipotent in its capabilities and its must and its just in, must keep replicating myself. Yeah, and must so you, make more of myself. You <laughs> humans are getting in the way. Right. So you make this super smart, capable thing, and you tell it to like. All right, you're going to go work at the paperclip factory today. And it has this sort of directive that making paperclips is good. And so then it goes on to just make everything into paperclips. And you can't shut it off because it will know that if you shut it off, it will not be able to make more paperclips and it will get around that. And so this is sort of a thought experiment for how Are there AI people could... seriously being paid to think about these? There are, yeah. these thought experiments. Right. And so I did air it in my book because it is a sort of like catastrophe situation some people have thought of, but I just feel like we have such more pressing concerns given what we know about the way the planet behaves than... Yeah, than computers taking over, but... Well, do you, in the end, Peter, do you have hope that we'll figure it out? I think that we will avoid... I don't think we're going to get... The Permian really is what happens when you turn all the knobs to 11, basically, um, in the Earth's... But we're, we're really turning the knobs We are, up. we are, yeah, and we're doing it as hard as and fast as we can, but... Uh, I feel like even in the last few years, I've become, I feel like the conversation has changed a lot. And so some of the predictions for how much CO2 we're going to put in the air by the end of the century uh, kind of rely on uh, a planet where coal use just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And it does seem like investments in renewables. We're going to run out of coal. We just Well, hopefully we don't. Fossil fuel, we're getting, well. Hopefully we don't run out of it by using it all because that really would be a worst case scenario. I just think we're at the beginnings of a really important transition i hope and so this is sort of what i was saying before that these are the next few decades sort of determine whether we're in a mass extinction or not so if we burn all the coal yeah it's probably gonna be real we'll go down in history with these really 
horrific events. And we've already been real, like just really given the environment of beating for hundreds and even thousands of years. Uh, but there's still time to sort of turn the ship around, I think. What are we going to do to do that? We have to completely stop burning fossil fuels altogether within the next couple decades. Um, and we have to set aside huge parts of the planet just sort of as wildlife preserves. Because we're, we already are going to have some warming, and plants and animals are going to want to migrate. And if there's just sort of highways and people... and There's already armadillos here in the backyard. Are there really? in Kansas. Yeah, they're right. Yeah. It's happening. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, like, given that there is going to be planetary change, we need to let nature kind of have some breathing room. Um, and also even to address some of the stuff we've already done. So for f- overfishing, for instance, it is amazing. If you give a fishery any time to recover, fish have babies by the thousands, and they can bounce back pretty quickly. Sometimes they don't because we've messed them up, so, the ecosystem up so bad, like cod in the Atlantic. But for the most part, I think the natural world is really resilient. If we just take our you know, foot off it, the throat, then we'll have a chance to kind of recover. Hey, Art, let me ask you this. If you could time travel, you could go, I don't want to go into, you do a great job of describing what the future is going to be like when the Mm. sun dwindles out and the planet, you know, comes together and humans are a distant memory of the planet. But if you could time travel, go back in time, what exciting epoch what awesome age, what paleo period would you want to go back to and what would you want to see? I think it would have to be something in the Paleozoic. Paleozoic. Just because, you know, I can imagine a world like ours where big dinosaurs are walking around, even though they're spectacular and magnificent. The Paleozoic, there's things about it that really seem pretty alien. So like in the Ordovician or the Devonian, you'd have all these bizarre sea creatures and things. But on land in the, I think it's the Silurian, you have, instead of trees, you have 30 foot tall mushrooms on land and it just is such an alien world i also i'm not i don't really love you know bugs or spiders or anything so maybe a totally invertebrate <laughs> world would be a little would give me the heebie-jeebies a little bit oh, maybe the devonian just because the fit the fish are so strange definitely not the carboniferous that's the one i know that i never too many heard. bugs the sea, bugs are really big yeah the sea dragonflies size, size. they call it those size millipedes i don't want any, to have anything to do with yeah, it's kind of creepy. I, I'd agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. Maybe, I mean, actually, you know what? I would Maybe the late Cretaceous, as, as sort of blockbuster and well-known as it is, I really would want to know what those what a T-Rex actually looked like. What, what its sort of coloration would be. And So there's this great thing online where it's, what if we reconstructed a hippo from its skull as if we were a right, paleo artist? Right, right, right. And it just looks nothing like it. And I'm right. sure we're missing just like a universe of... As an artist, I'm like, well, yeah, it could be even crazier looking. I'm pretty actually, you know, with the way I depict some of my critters. Yeah. They're pretty conservative, really, yeah. But. Right. So things could just be look a lot weirder than we ever could have imagined back then. So. Well, like trunks don't fossilize on an elephant. Right, right. right. So, like, and some of these Permian things have all these weird knobs on their head. No one really knows what they are, and who knows what those were supporting. They're funky looking, the Gorgonopsians and all that. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let me ask you this. Uh, well, you're working on a new book. Yeah. Good title for it yet? We don't have a title for it, no. But it's kind of a, so. This book is kind of about how the planet breaks in Earth history, and the new book. Is well, kind of, that's that's what this one is. Yeah, no, that's what this. Oh, that's no, what this, this one is. is. All right, the, and this is how it breaks. Yeah, the new one is kind of about like how it works, how this sort of really to explain how the Earth machine works, um, and what is in particular uh, carbon and carbon dioxide, and the movement of carbon through the Earth system is kind of what makes it earth earth and um today we're sort of messing with 
that process in a big way. And I think by sort of explaining, you know, how the whole thing works, it'll help illustrate sort of what we're doing to it, put it in more context. Um, but it's also about, it's about human history and why there is stuff in the ground that we dig up and burn. So the ge- sort of tying geology to human history. Hey, well, Peter, uh, Peter Brand, thanks so much. And uh, we're signing, I'm Ray Troll signing off from Lindsborg, Kansas, little, little Sweden, USA, where next week it's uh, going to be Hillingsfest and all the Swedes will come out and dance in the streets. And uh, Peter, you're off to Lawrence tonight and then you're headed east, right? That's right. Working on the book. That's right. All right, well, cool, man. Well, thanks for being here. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, that was uh, amazing. It was like reading the book all over again. <laughs> yeah, we went through it step by step. I had my little drawing of the six mass extinctions, and I was reading them off to see if Peter agreed with what I had written on this little chart. But yeah. uh, it was very cool to guess, uh, walk through all the calamities the planet has been through, and then to kind of end on, on what was maybe the sixth, then he's a little bit more hopeful than many of us believe, you know? Well, I think the last chapter about humans' impact to our planet, it's stark and it's dark and it's scary because, you know, we all are aware of the trillions of tons of plastic and our carbon footprint, but I almost feel helpless. Like, I don't see the world just literally freaking out and stopping everything we're doing and really fixing it. It almost seems like it's a bunch of talk. We just all try to find our way. But uh, it's interesting that uh, he is saying basically that we haven't seen, if we're in a sixth mass extinction, we have not seen the worst of it yet. And when it starts, it really starts. And then everything dies. Yeah. I mean, that's basically... Yeah, but we're we're at the beginning of something. We're messing up the place, but maybe there's still hope. So yeah, you know, I was very fortunate. The uh, end of the Permian was the uh, huge volcanism, the spreading of uh, that giant rift valley in Pangaea, which created the huge rift valley and all the lava flows. And in the book, he talked about going to New Jersey and those cliffs. When you're standing in Manhattan, looking westward, you see these huge basaltic cliffs of New Jersey, and that is the huge mass of basaltic flows. And I was in New York dropping my son off to college, and I made a point to stand there, yeah, and look out and went, oh my goodness, that's the giant Rift Valley, that's that's the So that was at the Triassic-Jurassic extinction, which doesn't get that much love. You're right. You're right. That wasn't the Permian. That wasn't the end of the Permian. No, that wasn't the end of the Permian. This that happens right. again. There's right, right. And he was making the point in the book. There is there's something. There's a mass thing. It's bad for the planet when all the uh, the continents come together. But you know, on the opposite way too, when that all comes apart. Right. All the volcanism that is created. Yeah. The uh, Triassic Jurassic extinction doesn't get much love or much attention, but that's yeah. what was probably driving that one. Yeah, yeah. So that was. So I came away knowing quite a bit more about all the terrible things the world has been through. Yeah. Ends of the world. It's a great read. It really is. It's it's really. You know what? He's a colorful writer. Uh, what could be very boring scientific jargon, he's very colorful and it's interesting, and you can't put the book down. 
And I'm not just saying this as a paleo nerd. Yeah, yeah. And just as a regular lover of literature. No, I think it's it's a it's a good read for anyone who picks it up because you really come away with an understanding of it. And he, the guy's got a great turn of phrase. I had so many sticky notes in there. It's, it's crazy, but uh, right. You know, it's the ends of the world as we know it, and I feel sort of okay. And you it's know? the end of Paleo Nerds <gasps> Wait. Season 3. It is. That's 48. That's right. Do a high five, man. Three seasons, man. 48. Congratulations. And you know what? You have corralled and lassoed every single guest except one, and I appreciate that. Well, it's been great fun, and the list keeps growing. Cause, um, and we have you know, a lot more people we want to talk to, don't we? Yes, we do. Signing off from beautiful Lindsborg, Kansas, Little Sweden, USA, and I'm headed back to my northern home here soon. Uh, but anyways, I'm signing off Rachel here. And I'm signing off from Ojai, California, where we had a once-in-a-lifetime massive thunderstorm event with lightning shooting horizontally across the sky for hours and rain. And it was awesome, the first rain event we've had in a long time. Ojai, California, normally blue sky and mountain chaparral. This is <laughs> Dave Strassman saying, see ya. See ya later, man. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Billy.